This classic Encounters podcast is brought to you by Encounters North. To learn more about our podcast videos and projects and to support our work, please visit EncountersNorth.org. Hi, I'm Richard Nelson for Encounters, a program of observations, experiences, and reflections on the world around us. I'm about 30 miles out on the ocean, off the coast of southeast Alaska. And I'm not alone out here. I'm keeping company with a couple of boats, the fishing vessel Casino, which is longlining for black cod out here, and a research vessel for NOAA that I was lucky enough to take to get out here, part of a whale research project focusing on sperm whales. And But for this company of a couple of beautiful ships today, I am in the middle of a wilderness, the vastness of which is incomprehensible, far beyond any other wilderness on the face of the earth. Very light breeze and a low swell running across the ocean from the southwest. Patches of blue sky, some showers with dark veils of rain hanging down under them. Now, I'm gonna start my outboard engine here. To keep pace with the casino, and it's accompanying crowd of hungry birds. There's about 50 to 70 birds following the ship around, picking up scraps chucked off from the boat and the old bait that is coming off the hooks as they pull the fish on board. I'm watching black cod come up over the side. There's a red snapper. And it certainly is a good day for the birds that are trailing along the stern. The birds have learned how to do this. By far the most abundant one here is the black-footed albatross. As long as people have voyaged across the world's oceans, they have been captivated by the beauty and the grace of the albatross. And I've got a big smile on my face just for the joy of seeing these birds. It's very unlikely that you would ever see an albatross if you're standing on terra firma. You gotta be out in the ocean for these birds or maybe on a a little island somewhere. The flight of these great birds, the albatrosses, wheeling and veering on their prodigiously long wings, soaring effortlessly above the swells, is a study in pure, dazzling perfection. And man, we are looking at that perfection right now as a big albatross sails right across the bow of our little inflatable skiff here. A couple more actually sailing along at that sharp edge where the ocean horizon meets the sky, that edge that goes around us 360 degrees right now. And a fulmar flies right across the bow. There's an albatross like a great flying cross coming around off our stern. Little breeze picking up. Albatrosses love the wind. Well, very few people ever have a chance to see an albatross doing what it is right now, free and unbounded, flying in the vastness of the sea and the sky. Even fewer people realize that albatrosses come in large numbers each summer to the cold blue waters of Alaska and the Pacific coast of Canada and on down off the coast of Oregon and Washington and California. These great birds all around us in the air and on the water, there are albatrosses, about five or six of them in flight right now. Another one taking off. You may be able to hear 
the sound of their feet padding across the water. They don't just jump up off the water like a duck. They got to have a run at it. Constant albatross traffic around us as we're watching the folks on board the casino pulling more fish up over the side and these hungry birds keeping a close eye on them. Well, they've been attracted to this commercial long line fishing boat. The fishermen lay out lines that are anchored along the bottom of the ocean, hundreds and hundreds of hooks, and many of them have fish on them. As I mentioned, bits of bait and little fragments of fish being tossed off where people are working on the fish. And the albatross and the fulmars are scavenging on the floating discards. And also, sperm whales. I mentioned that we're out here doing sperm whale research, and they're attracted by the sound of the machinery pulling the lines and of the fishing boat itself going in and out of gear, sperm whales have learned that that can mean food hanging down as these lines are pulled up from the bottom of the ocean. Luckily, there are none here right now. Luckily for the fishermen, maybe not so luckily for the researchers on board our ship who are trying to study ways of discouraging, or maybe you could say deceiving, the sperm whales so that they don't follow these boats and take fish off the lines. The sperm whales have learned to gently pluck the fishing lines or to come up and tweeze fish off the line with the most delicate touch you can imagine. So what we've got on the lines that are being pulled by the casino, some of the lines have little round metal balls on them, and they're testing out the theory that that may confuse the sperm whales and keep them from getting these fish. We're in very deep water here, 200 or 300 fathoms of water. We're talking about a thousand or more feet of water under our hull right now. We're beyond the continental shelf, and with the clouds that are hanging around, a bit of mist here and there, we can't see shore looking in any direction. Can't quite get over the pleasure of being this far out on the ocean. It's a favorite habitat of sperm whales and albatrosses in the northern summer. Out here at the edge where the continental shelf drops off precipitously into the pelagic depths of the North Pacific Ocean. Now our albatrosses, almost close enough to touch they're pretty good-sized birds. They look like seriously overgrown seagulls. Some species of albatrosses weigh up to 25 pounds. That's about twice as heavy as a bald eagle. Most albatrosses of the world are white with dark markings, and they have very long, thick bills. This family of birds is called the tube noses. And as I look at a little fulmar that's swimming along about three feet off the side of my boat here and the albatross is a little farther away, the closest one maybe 10 feet, I can see that they have like straws that go down the top of their beak. They've got a good sense of smell, unusual among birds. A chunk of fish just went off the side of the boat here and our albatross is making a scramble. You're gonna hear them from time to time peeping and honking or mooing sounds as they argue with each other over bits of fish. The first thing you notice when you look at albatrosses in flight, we've got one flying right along the side of our skiff, coming in, landing just now on its big splayed out feet, skittering across the water. First thing you notice, prodigiously long, narrow, blade-like wings. These birds are born to glide. 
Well, it's no surprise that gliders or sailplanes look so much like the albatross in nearly identical shape with those long, narrow wings. It's the perfect shape for using the winds and the updrafts for sustained flight without an engine. And these birds are the geniuses of doing that. Watching these birds sail around us right now, I'm reminded of a description by the oceanographer and writer Carl Safina in his wonderful book called The Eye of the Albatross. And he writes this, an albatross is a great symphony of flesh, perception, bone, and feathers composed of long movements and set to ever-changing rhythms of light, wind, water. It drifts in the atmosphere at high speed, but itself remains immobile, an immense bird holding stock still yet shooting through the wind, following your traveling ship with ease, watching you circling stern to prow and back at will. It flies with scarcely a flinch, skimming wave upon wave, mile after mile. I've been watching albatrosses the last few days and talk about skimming waves. We see their wings bent in this beautiful, graceful arc and almost touching the surface as if it should leave a little trail on the water. So precise are the movements of these birds. And we've got one coming in for a landing right next to us, another one off in the distance about 30 yards away, doing exactly that. How in the world it can judge so the tips of its wings come so close to the water yet never seem to touch it? Pretty amazing. Well, there are 14 species of albatross in the world, 11 of these are found only on and above the oceans of the southern hemisphere. Albatrosses soar across those vast, unbroken, perpetually windswept sprawls of the subantarctic seas. They can be seen off the shores of Australia, New Zealand, South America, Africa, Antarctica. Most of those albatrosses nest on extremely remote, uninhabited islands strewn widely across the southern ocean. And there are only three species that have somehow managed to cross the great windless expanses of the subtropical oceans and establish themselves here in the North Pacific. All three of them are found in the waters off Alaska and British Columbia. The most common one here, the black-footed albatross, and that's the birds we're looking at right now. A dark grayish-brown body and wings, and a wingspan to about seven feet. These are big birds. The body looks about the size of a goose. There's also another fairly common kind of albatross, especially in other parts of the North Pacific. That's the Laysan albatross. White on the underside, black on top of the body and wings, and a wingspan to about six and a half feet, slightly smaller than our black-footed albatrosses. But what we've got around us now is an exclusive crowd. Wait a minute! There's a Laysan albatross, the second one I've seen now in about four days out here. It shows up just in time to be on the radio, circling, skimming the water, now comes in for a landing about 30 yards away from us. That's beautiful timing to see a Laysan albatross. Now both the black-footed and the Laysan albatrosses range across the full immensity of the North Pacific Ocean. On the Asian side, from Taiwan up to Japan and Kamchatka, clear across the Pacific, and found here from northern Mexico to the Gulf of Alaska and to the Bering Sea. Now the black-footed albatross and the Laysan albatross that just came in to join us here, you might think of them as sister species. They are very closely related to each other, 
and nearly all of them nest in the Hawaiian Islands. So these birds that we're looking at off the coast of southeast Alaska have all come here from Hawaii. Then I mentioned there are three species of albatross found here in the North Pacific. The other one is called the short-tailed albatross. They're extremely rare. They have a white body like the Laison, but a yellow wash on the head, a beautiful bird, and a great big beak, bubblegum colored, that you can't mistake for anything else. Wingspan on the short-tailed albatross about seven and a half feet, so that is one heck of a big bird. They were once abundant, and now one of the rarest birds anywhere in the world. And the short-tailed albatrosses nest only on two tiny islands off the coast of Japan. Now our black-footed albatrosses, they feed mostly on squid. They also eat small schooling fish, little shrimp-like krill, and they like to scavenge dead stuff. Now our birds here have all crowded up close to our longline fishing boat, hoping to get a bit of a handout. No fish coming over the side right now, just bare hooks or hooks that still have remnant bait. And the man working at the gunnel of the boat just scraped a bunch of that bait off. Birds went up to grab some of it. They're arguing with each other, as we can hear. Now our black-footed albatross, you can tell right now as we watch them that they're visual feeders. They'll grab at almost anything, which doesn't always work to their advantage because they'll eat plastic, they'll eat styrofoam, rubber, fishing line, anything. So they can fill up their stomach with garbage off the face of the ocean and starve to death because they're not eating anything that's really edible. They'll also take that debris that they pick up back to the nest and it can be lethal for their chicks. Now in November or December, the Laysan and black-footed albatrosses return to the island where they were born to mate, to lay eggs, and to raise their chicks. The black-footed and the Laysan albatrosses are very long-lived birds. Both live for more than 40 years. They don't reach maturity and mate until they're seven to nine years old. Their courtship may last three to five years. These are birds that don't do anything in a big hurry. It takes them that long to establish a pair bond that usually lasts for life. So an albatross can be mated for maybe 30 years. The mates establish their bond by elaborate, ritualized courtship. They symbolically preen the feathers on their sides and back. They point their bills toward the sky. They make long, mooing calls, some of which we've been hearing as they argue back and forth here. I've been watching these birds and sometimes they'll swim up to each other face to face and touch bills. It looks very affectionate when they do that and I guess that may be exactly what it is. Our black-footed albatrosses stick more to the northwest chain of the Hawaiian Islands, harder ones to see. They make a very simple nest, the albatrosses, scooped out place on the ground and all albatrosses lay one very large egg. The wandering albatross, the biggest of the whole albatross family, their egg weighs about one pound, about eight times the size of a large chicken egg. Now what you're hearing, if you just joined us, we're talking about albatrosses off the coast of southeast Alaska. And we're hearing the sounds of my outboard engine. I'm in a little skiff and I'm hanging out with a longline commercial fishing boat here. And we've got albatrosses all around us. Like everything else in albatross life, nesting is long and slow. Parents take turns incubating that egg for about two months. They feed and shelter their chick for another six months or so. It's a huge effort to raise that albatross chick. 
Some species only nest every two or three years, and that's the case for our black-footed albatrosses here. And once they've got a chick, the male and the female alternate trips to get food. The bird left sitting on the nest doesn't eat or drink in the hot sun in those Hawaiian islands. Each member of the pair is gone for about two or three weeks, so it's a long absence while one of the birds incubates the egg or takes care of that little chick, shelters it from the heat and protects it. The fledgling albatrosses face a dangerous world, and that begins when they first waddle into the water beside the nesting colony. The tiger sharks there in the northwest Hawaiian islands are waiting. They'll burst up from underneath and snatch that unfortunate bird. So something like eight months of effort is lost in a split second when that tiger shark grabs that young bird as it wades into the ocean. Well, here comes another albatross flying along right next to our boat. The ultimate marvel of the albatross, this brilliant, gloriously beautiful gift of flight that they have. Well, as we think about the gift of flight that albatrosses have, we gotta remember that most of them live in the windiest regions on Earth. And they constantly soar with these great long wings amid the power of the tempestuous hurtling gales, especially down in the Antarctic waters. Well, occasionally those gales will settle down. For example, I once went on a bird-watching charter boat in very calm waters off Kaikoura on the South Island of New Zealand. The skipper of the boat tossed fish guts in the water, and within 15 minutes, a big variety of seabirds appeared out of nowhere, so much like what we're seeing here off Southeast Alaska today and wandering albatrosses were among those birds. Wingspans to 11 and a half feet, that's just two feet shorter than the length of a compact car, and it was amazing to watch. Well, the exquisite beauty of albatross flight is immediately visible to us as we watch our birds soaring and sailing around us right now, but the facts about albatross flight absolutely stretch your imagination. Albatrosses can literally fly all day without ever moving their wings, traversing huge distances, even upwind at speeds of 50 miles an hour. The wandering albatross's heart actually beats slower in flight than it does when the bird is sitting on the sea. Albatrosses, the biologists speculate, can even sleep while they're soaring above the ocean. Carl Safina describes it this way. Exerting no propelling power of its own over long distances, it is driven by the tension between the two greatest forces on our planet, gravity and the solar-powered wind. An albatross's flight relies on exploiting what all other flying creatures struggle to overcome. By working with wind and gravity, its flight surpasses all others. We've got a bit of wind coming up right now, and the albatrosses are loving it. We've got them sailing all around us now at the moment. Now, what's the secret to this amazing albatross flight? Well, there are three main elements. First, the skeletal structure of the bones in the wings. They lock in place like the opened blade of a folding knife so that no muscular effort is required to hold the wings out. Now they also use a fascinating strategy called dynamic soaring. First the bird sails downwind, slowly losing altitude. Then the bird turns crosswind or upwind, 
sets its wings and lets the wind lift it into the stronger winds that are higher up. And then it turns and soars downwind again. So it's in this pattern of constant circling undulations that the albatross can fly even upwind all day long without ever flapping its wings. This bird is a genius at living on the wind. Now the third secret is that these birds borrow energy from the waves. So they're lifted by the updrafts of wind that sweep up the face of every wave or swell that moves across the ocean. And we're watching this right now. One coming directly toward us, using the air that's sweeping up the face of a wave, turns parallel like a surfer to the wave, and now it comes in. So all of those processes combine to allow the effortless flying hour after hour of the albatross. Just tiny adjustments to every subtle air current as it borrows the energy from the moving air. Now here's what I think is the most astonishing thing of all about albatross flight. A biologist named David Anderson used tiny little transmitters to track Lazon and black-footed albatrosses nesting in the Hawaiian Islands. And he made a discovery that's absolutely mind-boggling. On a single feeding flight, albatrosses may travel from the Hawaiian Islands to the Aleutian Islands in Alaska, to the Gulf of Alaska, or to the Pacific Coast off San Francisco. They feed on that distant cold ocean. They convert that food to oil in the stomach if they're feeding at a great distance from their nesting grounds. And then they return to the nest and they regurgitate that oil and undigested food to feed their chick. It's a round trip of 6,000 miles from the nesting grounds in Hawaii to the feeding grounds off California or Alaska. It's like walking from Anchorage to Chicago and back again to get food for the kids. That's what these birds around us right now accomplish. Every time you look at something closely in nature, you discover another miracle. So each albatross makes four round trips from the time their young hatch until the young ones take off on their own. It's a total distance of 25,000 miles over a period of 90 days. Why do they do this? probably because food is so scarce in the subtropical waters and it's incredibly rich here in the North Pacific off Alaska. Now, for the first several years of its life, a young albatross may never even glimpse land. So they alight only on the water. And during their entire lifespan, albatrosses spend about 95% of their existence at sea, flying most of the time. Now, albatrosses have a famous habit of doing what ours are doing right now, following ships and looking for scraps of food. Now, there's an old superstition among mariners that the albatross that keeps company with a sailing ship is a harbinger of wind. Albatrosses, the old story goes, are the reincarnated souls of drowned sailors. And killing an albatross would bring bad luck to a ship and to a voyage. Now this is a belief that was made famous by Samuel Coleridge's poem, The Rime of the Ancient Mariner. And in that poem, a sailor kills an albatross that had followed the ship. And after that, terrible bad luck plagued that voyage. Near the end of the poem, the crew of the ship decided they were gonna punish the killer and they hung the dead albatross around his neck. And in the poem, it goes like this. 
and I had done a hellish thing, and it would work him woe. For all averred, I had killed the bird that made the breeze to blow. Ah, wretch, said they, the bird to slay that made the breeze to blow. Ah, well-a-day, what evil looks had I from old and young. Instead of the cross, the albatross about my neck was hung. Interestingly, that belief still persists among some mariners. For example, in 1959, a ship called the Calpian Star sailed from the Antarctic carrying a live albatross for a zoo in England. And that ship was troubled by constant bad luck. And the crew blamed their troubles on having an albatross aboard. But they managed to limp into Liverpool in England. And once they were there, the crew staged a sit-down strike protesting against having that albatross on board their ship. As if things weren't bad enough, after they offloaded the albatross, they had engine failure on their way back to the Antarctic, and then they struck rocks off South Georgia and had to be towed into Montevideo. Finally, the Calpian Star sunk while heading back out to sea from Montevideo. And you gotta wonder, was it the albatross or was it the humans who were at fault? Well, we've got an albatross listening to us right here, five feet away from the boat, looking at us through those great dark eyes. Well, nowadays, unfortunately, it's mostly the albatrosses that are having bad luck. Alaskan albatrosses used to be far more numerous. Starting back in the late 1800s, hundreds of thousands of them were killed on their nesting grounds for their feathers. Now, albatrosses never evolved fear of humans, and we can see that right now as they're paddling along right next to us. So you can walk right up to them and kill them, and that's what they did. During World War II and afterward, albatrosses were also shot by the tens of thousands on Midway Island in the Hawaiian chain to keep them off the runways and to prevent air collisions. And then finally, they were protected in the Hawaiian Islands National Wildlife Refuge and in the Papahanao Mokukuakea Marine National Monument. Their numbers have slowly rebuilt. Oh, we've got about 10 albatrosses and some fulmars in a tight bunch, and we can hear them having quite a squabble over a chunk of fish. Albatrosses are still among the most imperiled species of animals on Earth, mainly because of commercial fisheries. Large numbers of these birds are killed when they're caught offshore in drift gill nets and they drown, or when they grab the bait as long lines are reeled out. They're hooked and they're pulled under and they drown. Now I gotta say right now, since we're following a long liner, they've devised methods of stopping that from happening by putting streamers out that scare the birds away from the bait. A simple and very effective solution. They're required here in Alaska and in many other parts of the world and that has significantly reduced that kill. But some fishing nations still do nothing to stop the killing of albatrosses. More than 100,000 albatrosses are killed in fisheries every year. Most albatross species, as a consequence, are still rapidly declining. Well, Carl Safina writes, as we watch these albatrosses flying low over the swells, Theirs is a fluid world of wind and wild waters, everything in perpetual motion. As we watch these extraordinary birds off the southeast Alaska coast, we realize that 
the immense flight of a single black-footed albatross weaves the whole ocean together, from Alaska to Hawaii, from California to Kamchatka. And so the albatross adds to our growing awareness that nothing on Earth happens in just one place. We're all interconnected, and our fates are wholly intertwined. Well, for encounters, as we listen to these albatrosses squabbling over another bit of food here, I'm Richard Nelson. Want to thank you so much for your good company. A special word of appreciation to Jan Straley and to the crews of the Northwest Explorer and the Casino. And thanks to these birds for showing us once again that life on Earth is a constant, lavish unfolding of miracles. See you next time. Encounters is a production of the Island Institute and KCAW in Sitka, Alaska. This program was written and narrated by Richard Nelson, edited and produced by Lisa Bush, special consulting from Ken Fate, theme music by Outback. Encounters is funded by the National Science Foundation and by the Kenneth Johnson Family Foundation, the North Pacific Research Board, and Robert Osborne, Jerry Tone, Martha Wyckoff, and Sue Cohn. For more information about the show and to hear podcasts, go to EncountersNorth.org. Thank you.